This episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast is presented by Sling. For the latest soccer action this week, uh, we've got the CONCACAF Champions League match midweek on, on Tuesday, LAFC against Philadelphia Union. Of course, there is Arsenal against Chelsea in the Premier League on Tuesday too. Uh, Wednesday too, you've got action from the Premier League and uh, Champions League also. So if you do want to watch any of these games, check out sling.com. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast. My name is Christopher Harris. I am joined by my co-host Kartik Krishnayer. Kartik, this this is a, a topic that uh, comes up uh, probably every uh, twelve months, especially so. Uh, talking about uh, relegation towards the end end of the European season, uh, as well as promotion, of course. But did you know that automatic promotion and relegation? Uh, started in the late 1890s in England, and what they did right before they did relegations, before that was a thing uh, between the first division and the second division, is they had test matches. So the bottom two teams in the first division, and then the top two teams in the second division played test matches. Um, and then based on the results of those games, then they'd, they'd figure out who'd go up and who'd go down. However, what happened was that in the first division, I think it was, I think it was Stoke City and Blackburn colluded. And, and uh, you mean, figured out a way to uh, kind of cheat the system. Uh, so after that, 18, 1892, I think it was, was the first time that, uh, what was it, 1898? It was a long time ago, 1890s. That's when uh, automatic promotion and relegation became a thing. So this is over well over a hundred years of history. Uh, what for you, Kartik? Just just to start off with, in terms of relegation uh, specifically, which is what we're going to talk about uh, today. A lot of big matches from th- this past weekend that have implications as well as this week, uh, and not just the Premier League, but I mean other leagues too. The Bundesliga. We saw a big game this past weekend between Schalke and Bremen. I think it was a uh, real n- nail biter at the end. Um, but what for you? What what's the attraction to relegation specifically for you? Well, for, first off, um, that 1890s, uh, that, that is correct. Uh, there was also an election process that continued in the Football League for many years after that. Uh, so uh, it wasn't always merit-based. I, I do want to point that out because uh, that, 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 that will come up. I'm sure we will get feedback about that uh, if I don't mention that. But um, yeah, it, 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 it to me is the essence of football, right? Fighting for survival, uh, fighting for your community. These are largely community-based clubs. Uh, you mentioned Schalke with that huge win over Bremen the other day. Uh, Bremen really not playing Playing well of late, which is uh, not necessarily good news considering they have Bayern next. Not good news for me. Uh, But Schalke, you see the fight in them since the winter break uh, to get out of this relegation zone. They are a club that has more supporters than any other in Germany, with the exception of Dortmund uh, and Bayern and maybe Eintracht Frankfurt. Um, they, they, they are a huge club. Uh, they are one of the historic clubs in Germany. And when they got relegated two years ago, it was a stunner. Remember, they had just finished second in the league a couple of years earlier. Uh, and now, uh, they've been in the relegation zone the entire season, uh, but now uh, are close to climbing out of 
of it. Uh, Stuttgart has been winning a lot lately, also, so that's uh, that that's affected them. But it affects a com- it affects communities. It creates a compelling product because the communities are so invested in these clubs, Chris, that you you feel the angst in the crowd, right? You felt it in that Schalke Bremen match. You felt it in the Leicester Everton match uh, today. We're recording this on Monday, and it's something that um, reminds us that football is very much about uh, communities. Uh, supporters, local supporters, and um, basically uh, living on knife's edge. It's not the glamour, for the most part, that you see from the Galacticos of Real Madrid and and the oil money of Manchester City, etc. There's so much more to it, and and I think relegation captivates that. Yeah, when you think about it, relegation actually... um we we see that a lot more in regular life, right? So if you're in high school or college, uh, if you fail your tests or fail your exams or fail that grade, uh, you basically have to re- repeat that that uh, that grade level again. You don't get promoted up to the next year or the next grade. Uh, you see that at work. If if you're doing a really awful job at work, making mistakes and and really poor performance. Chances are you'll get laid off or you'll get fired. Those who do well get promoted up to, I mean, within the ranks or to a higher position. So it's it's something that yes, in soccer specifically, I mean, it's something that uh, many of us love, uh, especially this time of the season too, because it's one of those things that, for me personally, I'm watching more of the relegation battles than I am the top of the table clashes. I'm trying to watch all of them as much as possible. But oftentimes I, I'm kind of looking at the relegation thinking, OK, that to me, for me personally, I, I find that even more exciting than the actual kind of title race or the, the race for Europe. Now, if you're a fan of one of those big six teams, that's a completely different story. But for me as a neutral, I'm attracted to that relegation battle. And Kartik, is there anything in American sports that's anything anywhere close to relegation as far as you know? Uh, not really, no. And and uh, I'm like you. I, I'm just. I'm actually not that interested in uh, the top of the table of uh, of most of these leagues. I mean, I I, uh, I, I watched Napoli yesterday. They kind of clinched. They didn't really, but I mean, it, it's going to take that point. It really helps them. Uh, makes it almost impossible for Lazio to catch them. Uh, but other than that, I'm I'm really captivated by relegation fights. We've got a major relegation battle in Spain. Also, we talked about Germany. We're talking about England. Uh, there's a, 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 a real relegation fight going on uh, at the bottom of the championship I've been writing about. So uh, it, it, there's nothing like it in American sports. And at, when it comes to May, this seems to hold my interest more than, than title races or races for Europe, that sort of thing. Uh, maybe that's just me. Um, I, I can't think of anything offhand that's like it in American sports. Again, I do think there is a certain form of promotion and relegation within college sports, but it doesn't happen this dramatically it kind of happens uh it's kind of happened because of money more than anything where some some uh, schools have, have ended up uh falling in, from one conference to another uh based on just just bad circumstances whatever uh market size and then vice versa with some other schools um uh, you know, here we have two schools in in florida florida atlantic and university of central florida that are sort of being promoted, quote-unquote, this uh, this uh, off-season to bigger conferences, really because of the size of their universities, no, nothing else. 
And for maybe the last, say, five or ten years, most of the final action in the Premier League is just uh, just as one example of a league. Most of the action, the final day action, basically based on those final day results, usually it's the relegation battle that comes down to the wire. And and the title race and the qualification for Europe, usually by the end, it's already we already know for the most part um, the relegation battle. This this year, um, you mean six teams in the running that could go down. Um, so it is exciting. It, it is fascinating, and that's what we're going to talk about. Now, Kartik, uh those six teams. Uh, I have to include West Ham in this. I, I really feel that they're not out of the woods yet. But to me, it's West Ham, Leicester, Leeds United, Nottingham Forest, Everton, and Southampton. Out of those six, which one do you think is performing the worst right now in terms of form? <laughs> That's a great question. They're all pretty lousy. Um, West Ham is probably the best of those six. Um the other five are all performing poorly. I, I, who's the worst of them? I mean, I would say probably Forrest, but they did get that one uh, that one victory uh, in, in in the in that period. But oh boy, they, they're all performing poorly. I mean, I think they all really, quite frankly, deserve to go down. <laughs> hey, maybe we'll change it this season and have all six go down. To me personally, Leeds United by far is the worst team out of the six. And uh, not just from this past Saturday, but from just like the last few weeks, especially even more so. Um, they're not scoring goals. They're conceding a large number of goals where they're losing 4-1, 5-1, 6-1. this team and they're weak in defense. They have been for a long time. They're very weak, uh, especially the center halves. Uh, the goalkeeper suspect at times. Uh, midfield is e- extremely poor. Um, and they're really missing Tyler Adams. Uh, Weston McKinney is not up to grade. And uh, to me, right now, the way he's playing, he's not a Premier League player. He's starting those games, but Leeds are devoid of, of a midfield. And up front, they're, they're short on ideas, right? So Bamford's going through a really bad patch after coming back from uh, injury. He's not match fit. Um, he's you mean fit as far as far as uh, running around, but in terms of his sharpness, it's not there. So on and so forth. And you I mean to me, I leads. You look at the fans. You look at kind of the reaction. You look at the players. The players. It seems to be the way that they're playing. They're giving up. They're not putting putting it in a hundred percent. As soon as they concede a goal or two, that's it. Heads are down. Um, marking is really poor. I mean, to me, leads are. On basically in a free fall. West Ham, I, I mean, West Ham, we could go through all of these. West Ham defensively are shambles. We saw that in that, that Crystal Palace game. Uh, they're so in, inconsistent. Forrest, to me, though, Kartik, I think Forrest shows glimmers of hope. I mean, even against Brentford, they were very unlucky. Um, they've been really battered by some really tough injuries. Um kind of players out for the season and have come so close in in the last few games um you mean where they have lost to get getting getting a point or, or even getting three points so to me i think they've been really unlucky um everton Ever- everton looks good though. i think everton shows fight um southampton shows fight they don't have the points yeah so w- what's your take on this i mean, I mean if you're looking at the this bottom six uh who do you feel right now, which I know it's really difficult, but who do you feel are going to go down? 
Well, I mean, Forest uh, have five points in their last ten matches, so I, even if they might pass an, uh, an eye test, they're not getting results. Southampton's next three matches are interesting because they've got Forest uh, away. That's very difficult, but if somehow they got three points in that, let's let's not forget, they just got a point at Arsenal um, last week. So if they somehow beat that, uh, won that match, they then have Fulham after Fulham ha- are all banged up now and, of course, have Mitrovic suspended. So that's a match you could win and then at Brighton after that, Brighton's a side that uh, I think are, are really hit or miss. And, and when they play poorly, it tends to be against uh, lesser teams. I, I still think Southampton goes down. I think Leeds goes down. I agree with you. Uh, in addition to your point on Weston McKinney, which I completely agree with you, he does not look like a, a Premier League caliber um, midfielder. And quite honestly, there were times at Schalke, he had these dips also. So, and at Juventus, he was in and out of the team, right? So we've never consistently seen it from him over a long period of time in three different top leagues. So uh, a jury's kind of out on him. Um, Mark Roca is a guy I'm really disappointed with, right? He's a guy um, I didn't think was a particularly good Bundesliga player. Thought it was a mistake by Jesse Marsh, uh, who was familiar with him from Leipzig, uh, to bring him over from the Red Bull system, and, and he hasn't worked out. So I say Leeds, Southampton. <sighs> that third spot, um, I... I I mean, I'm, I'm hoping it's not Everton, uh, but they're not getting, they're battling. You're right. They're fighting. But today, I, I think they should have gotten all three points. Uh, 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 Everson with some great uh, goalkeeping for, for, for uh, Leicester. But still, Everton aren't getting the points they need. So I, I have to say it's probably uh, going to be them. I mean, their their uh, results are not matching the performances. They they uh, should have won that match against Palace. Uh, they should have uh, uh, gotten more, uh, I feel, out of the match against Spurs, where they were the better team. Uh, 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 that was fairly recently. So they're not getting they're not getting three points anywhere, and that's a real concern. So I think it's those three. Leicester should go down, uh, but I guess they won't. So when I when I say all six of those teams are bad, you might be right, Chris. Even though five points in ten matches is terrible, Forrest is the second least poor of, of that six that you mentioned. So yeah, I'm with you. They'll stay up. Uh, I think Leicester should go down, uh, but... But snatching a point today, uh, maybe, in my opinion, kind of an undeserved point, um, that might save them. Yeah, West Ham, I mentioned before, too, that uh, they're not out of the woods yet. But you look at West Ham's fixtures for the rest of uh, the season. They play Man City away midweek in one of the uh, catch-up games. So Man City away. Then they play Man United at home. Then they play Brentford away. And then the last two games are going to be like crunch matches for those bottom six teams. But the last two matches for West Ham are Leeds at home and then Leicester away. So West Ham United could... You mean have a, be a major factor in who stays up, who goes down, uh, including themselves in this one too. So if they if they fall apart to those last two games against Leeds and Leicester, they could be right in the mix there too. Um, Everton, yeah, Everton. I mean, Brighton is their next match. Then they play Man City, and then they play Wolves, and then Bournemouth. So you look at those Wolves and Bournemouth matches and think, okay, maybe maybe there's an opportunity there to to get some points, but. Um, we saw with Bournemouth, right, this past weekend against Leeds United, uh, really convincing victory for Bournemouth. But then Leeds is, is pretty poor at the same time. And then um, Southampton, like you mentioned too earlier too, Southampton plays Forest, uh, which is winnable. And then they play Fulham. 
again, like you said, to kind of injury hits and uh, without Mitrovic. And then they play Newcastle and then they play, um, I'm sorry, then they play Brighton, which is a, a derby and then Liverpool in the last game of the season. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's all to play for. The three I think we'll go, that will go down are Southampton, Leeds United and, oh gosh, I don't want it to be Nottingham Forest, but I think I think I think Nottingham Forest, but but West Ham, I think really have to be really careful. The thing about Everton, Kartik, and you know this better than anyone, right? Everton have scraped by for so many years, narrowly escaping relegation, time after time after time after time, and you wonder if, if this is going to be kind of the the last straw for them, the kind of the fa- final nail in the coffin, and and if they will go down, because I think I think if any club needs. Uh, restructuring uh, on the field and off the field and having a season to really transform that squad, push players out, bring some new ones in and turn that around and hopefully, right, bounce back into the Premier League. Uh, then with a new stadium, I think Everton's the one that needs that that kind of recycling. Yeah, uh, although you could argue uh, the reason they scrape by is because uh, I'm not trying to belittle any of the other clubs. They're all great clubs. All all clubs have fanatical support in England. But the level of support and the difficulty of going into the ground uh, at Goodison, uh, to going to Liverpool and facing Everton is unlike any other experience near the bottom of the table. And quite frankly, is uh, there are people who tell me it's unlike any other experience in England, right? It, they, they, it's complicated. Uh, folks that, that that have been around the world, been to a lot of grounds, tell me it's comparable to the, some of the, the, the liveliest grounds in South America, to the grounds in Germany. Uh, the Bundesliga in general has better crowds, better crowd involvement than the Premier League. And uh, there are former referees who will tell you it is the hardest place to officiate uh, in England, bar none, uh, because of the crowd being on top of you, because of how vocal they are and uh, the spirit they bring. So that might be worth a point or two for Everton. It was last season, right? It's what kept them up last season. Was uh, I mean, I, of course, waxed lyrically about Frank Lampard and tactical changes and his man management, but the reality was it was their supporters that kept them up. It could be the same thing uh, this season. Uh, one point I want to make about this whole relegation fight. Actually, uh, born, actually oh, go ahead. Let me just chime in on the Everton thing. So, uh, so uh, to me personally, yes, the fans in the past have been kind of the deciding factor but really, to me, that last game of the season against Palace last year, it was uh, Richarlison. That was the difference. So the standout player really saved Everton in the match. But the fans were backing them. However, I think now everything that's gone on with Mashiri and, and Bill Kenwright and just how disappointing of a season it's been, uh, fears of financial fair play and just really kind of the, the disconnect between the fans and the board, I think... If they did go to Goodison and you mean know, they've got some games coming up, who do you got? Home against Man City, um, or home against Bournemouth at the last game of the season. If you mean this they go down two nil, I, I can see that that fan base at Goodison turning and and being you mean protesting or turning the other way, being more negative than they have in the past. Because I, I think most of those fans are you mean enough's enough. Time has to change. Something has to change. So I don't think that's as much of a of a factor as it would have been in, in, even last season. 
That's very possible, right? I mean, they're they're. Uh, it's not just Mashiri. They're at the wit, their wits end uh, with the board. Some of whom, like Ken Wright, have been around before Mashiri came in. Uh, Usmanov, whose money was floating the club, uh, he has been sanctioned by the UK government uh, as a result of Putin's invasion. Uh, he's a uh, oligarch close to Putin as a result of Putin's invasion of Russia of Ukraine. And you have uh, other issues. They were already running afoul of FFP uh, and got a waiver because of COVID before that. So there's all kinds of uncertainty around Everton's finances. Uh, The one point I wanted to make real quickly about this um, relegation fight, Chris, is Bournemouth was a side that most people had picked 20th before the season. Uh, If you watch Sky and you listen to TalkSport, they were supposed to be the bottom team. They had a manager in Scotty Parker who uh, said the team wasn't good enough, openly attacked um, uh, the club hierarchy and got himself sacked the next day. Uh, His assistant, Gary O'Neill, has gotten them to a point where they're safe. And um, not only has O'Neill done a remarkable job, and we're not talking about Bournemouth in this podcast because they are safe, uh, even though they have what is basically a championship squad. It's the same squad they had in the championship that they got promoted with. But they have, I think the key thing to understand when we talk about these other six teams is that the midfield for Bournemouth is really, really good. So even though they they were they were in the championship last year, Tavernier, who, who they bought from uh, Middlesbrough and, and Lerma and, uh, and, and Billing, even though those guys were in the championship last year, they're a Premier League, a mid-table Premier League level midfield, which has made everything else where Bournemouth do have a lot of holes around the pitch um, and that's why they have minus 30 goal difference or whatever. That's why they're safe right now. So the thing I would mention is that you you went right to, to, um, to McKinney, right, with Leeds. These teams we're talking about that are fighting relegation all have suspect midfields and I'm shocked I'm saying that about West Ham because they have Declan Rice who uh, to me was one of the three or four best players in English football the previous two seasons, better than most of the guys on Man City that people wax lyrically about and, and Arsenal and, and uh, Man United, etc. But this season, he's dropped off. Paqueta has been pretty good, but he, he plays further forward. Socek uh, had a good match offensively against Palace, but he hasn't been anywhere near uh, the same level he used to be at. Uh, so the midfields have been a real concern for all six of these sides, and that's the reason why Bourne myth with a championship squad is safe and we're talking about teams several teams that have been in the Premier League five of these six teams have been in the Premier League for a while that we're talking about going down uh, potentially going down are struggling yeah no that, that's a great point Kartik and, and in looking in that Bournemouth against Leeds match from this past weekend uh, I was thinking something similar too I was thinking I was looking at Leeds United and going hey this is a championship team there really aren't that many standout players in that squad that are going to make a difference. And and part of that is, I think, Jesse Marsh's, um, even in hindsight, right, uh, poor transfer decisions, poor signings. They really, most of them ha- haven't uh, come to fruition. Um, yes, they've had some injury problems this, through the season, but but that the way that they're playing and the way that they were outplayed by Bournemouth, um, Leeds looks like a championship squad. So what about what about the manager though, Kartik? So I know we're recording this on Monday. There's a lot of talk about uh, whether um, uh, 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 Javi uh, Gracia might might be sacked in the next 48 hours, possibly. Uh, the Leeds chairman looking at possibilities that kind of he has the final say in whether or not you mean to bring somebody else in. You mean is it too late? Is 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 it too late with four games to go to to 
eke out some type of points out of the last four games enough to keep them up? It's really difficult to make the change at this point and stay up. I, uh, uh, Shubala, who Escobala, who had the job uh, as a as a caretaker earlier in the season when they sacked Jesse Marsh, he's the only guy I could see making sense if they're going to sack Javi Gracia at this point. Um, four matches to go. I, I um, I'm trying to think of of a historical situation where this happened, where a manager was sacked. Uh, this late in the season and um, save the club. Now, there were several successive seasons about 10 years ago where Sunderland would sack their manager in March. And they one year they brought in Martin O'Neill, one year they brought in Goose Poyer, one year they brought in Paulo Decanio, and they would save them, but never in early May. And so I, I think it's too late. Yeah, you look at Leeds' fixtures for the rest of the season. So Man City away, Newcastle at home, West Ham United away and then Spurs on the final day of the season. And you look at those four matches, um, they could maybe pick up maybe one point at, at, at the way that they're going now, maybe. You mean, uh, so they might end up like, with no more points for the rest of the season. Uh, if they do ch- change a manager, it would, ne- it, it would need to be somebody, like you mentioned, um, in, in terms of on, on a temporary basis or someone that you could look ahead and say, OK, well, that person is even if they do go down, then um, someone like a, I don't know, Brendan Rodgers, if he would stoop so, so low to go to Leeds United at, at this point, could work with them within the championship and, and try to br- bring them back up next season. So they're in a really tough spot. And, and um, honestly, if they get a point from the next four games, that that's probably being optimistic, <laughs> even though, even though it sounds completely pessimistic uh, on Leeds Leeds chances. So this is, uh, I, I mean, to me, this is a really fascinating race. Uh, it has been entertaining as we've seen with that Leicester Everton game. I'm sure the uh, the next game up for uh, for Forest against Southampton uh, coming up, I think th- this weekend is going to be you know it's going to be really really tense there. And Steve Cooper at Forest under enormous pressure, uh, knowing that you mean if Forest, even if Forest stays up, he's probably going to get the sack. Uh, if they go go down, he'll get the sack. But you mean he's really, really trying hard with the squad he has, and they're still missing. Even though even though they've had all the signings, right, over twenty signings, they're still missing that uh, that striker who's going to be scoring the goals week in week out. So yeah. Anything else on, on the relegation uh, matters, Kartik, uh, that you want to share before we move on? Yeah, I think the, the really key thing to look at when uh, it comes to West Ham is that they've, they've continued to advance in Europe during this time with relative ease. They're in the semifinals of the Conference League, and they have not been able to use those European matches to, to create the kind of continuity in the side you would expect because they've rotated so much. So West Ham, to me, like in this uh, Palace game, now granted, Azuma got hurt very early in the match, right? And Albana, who's had some injury problems the last two seasons, came on. Uh, and and uh, maybe uh, uh, that penalty was, uh, was really dodgy, right? On Agard. But the, the the bottom line is West Ham to me look like a side that have not played together 
and, and that that and uh, even more so than uh, Forrest, who brought in thirty guys. And this is a West Ham side that qualified for Europe the last two seasons. So my last parting thought on this is, even though uh, I, I I we look at the table, there are thirty four points. There are five points clear uh, or four points clear. Uh, you're right to include them in this conversation because they just have not been convincing. I mean, this is uh, a, a shocking. Uh, I, I think this is probably the biggest shock of the season for me outside of uh, yeah, actually I don't think you and I are that shocked about Chelsea I think a lot of other people are but uh, outside of the Chelsea shock for, for most people is how bad West Ham are and I still thought a month ago Chris by this time we'd be talking about West Ham the same way we're looking at Palace and Bournemouth okay uh, they were they were down there for a while Bournemouth was, was at the foot of the table for a while right but yeah they got the results we knew they had the team I, I had said uh, I guess this was one prediction I got right which I said two months ago I still thought uh, Bournemouth had a strong enough midfield, like I said on the show, that they, they would get out of it because they were much worse teams. And I, I was correct about that. But I was wrong. And I think everyone was wrong about West Ham. I mean, I assumed they'd be at 40 points, 42 points. Uh, and, and it would be it would be a typical because this sometimes happened with Everton with Moyes, too, where his team started poorly. And then by the end of the season, they were sitting sixth in the table or seventh in the table. And we'd forgotten how poorly they started the season. I really thought that was going to be the case this time. And I was saying that privately to people, oh, we're going to laugh at the end of the 2022-23 season and say, oh, remember that period of time when we thought West Ham might get relegated? Ha ha, they were sitting uh, third from bottom. Uh, Now we're into May and (laughs) still one of the teams you mentioned. So uh, that's my biggest point of all. My biggest takeaway is how underwhelming and disappointing they've been and how actually in terms of organization and structure, they look worse than the teams below them. Yeah, yeah. And with West Ham United too against Crystal Palace from this past weekend. I mean, just it looked like they were on summer vacation already. It looked like they, I mean, really, really poor defensive uh, uh, defending, but it did make it into an, an exciting game. So um, let's move on to list of mailbag. Uh, first up is uh, Joe. Joe wants to talk to us about um, our last episode about promotion and relegation. Joe says, I enjoyed the podcast with you and Kartik on MLS promotion and relegation. Uh, a lot of great points were raised and discussed. I personally do not have the MLS season pass. I have three kids under four years old. And Saturday, 7.30 uh, p.m. Eastern time, we are getting the kids ready for bed. Plus, I usually watch a ton of soccer in the morning and afternoon, and I'm exhausted from soccer by the time uh, MLS games come on. I also don't see MLS as a serious soccer league without promotion and relegation. If I were FIFA... I would mandate that they have uh, that MLS has promotion and, and relegation, uh, and FIFA has the legal authority to do so. Now, Kartik, you and I have talked about this uh, in the past. Uh, probably for most listeners, they may not remember, but I, I was at a, uh, a conference, I think SoccerX conference, um, several years ago, and, and this conversation came up, something similar to this, where there was a, a debate on the floor about promotion and relegation. And on the panel was a representative of one of the, the top soccer agencies in the United States. And any time this topic came up, he was very emphatic, uh, very defensive in a way, too, saying that U.S. law trumps FIFA law. And he kept on repeating it. It would come up again. He'd say, okay, U.S. law trumps FIFA law, basically saying that there's no, no, no matter what FIFA decides to do, 
U.S. law is above FIFA and U.S. law would make sure that uh, uh, these type of um, uh, things from FIFA that they would mandate would never pass. Do you think do you think that's I mean, we're not legal experts by any means, Kartik, but do you think that's really kind of just like pushing an agenda or do you think they actually have uh, that they actually that that may be the truth in terms of the way that the U.S. legal system works? And- I, I, I've heard other lawyers give other opinions and and uh, and this uh, also applies to solidarity payments and, and uh, training compensation. Uh, that might be a little more complicated, but I've heard uh, uh Many lawyers who who, who are versed in, in in antitrust law and, and kind of uh, law of competition and regulation of business give different opinions. So uh, this is uh, this is an excuse. Uh, but FIFA allows the U.S. to uh, to partake in it. You know, if if any other federation on the planet were um, were sued as often by stakeholders in the in the game as uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation's been sued, that federation would be kicked out of FIFA. Their national teams would be ineligible for for international competition. Not only has that not happened to the United States, but the United States has been rewarded by uh, being a host of the 2026 FIFA World Cup. So, and and that has actually nothing to do with promotion and relegation. I mean, I guess one of the uh, pieces of litigation which I was actually involved with with Miami FC uh, was a cast claim on promotion and relegation. But the rest have all been about pro-league standards, about equal pay, about uh, antitrust concerns around uh, uh, not sanctioning uh, friendlies about uh, the uh, 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 dispute with the charitable arm of U.S. soccer. Uh, these have all ended up in the court system and and been litigated, and uh, U.S. soccer gets away with it. So yeah, maybe U.S. law does trump FIFA law because FIFA won't enforce its own statutes on the United States. Next up is Chris. Chris says, hi, guys. I enjoyed both of you going into great detail on the effects, both positive and negative, of ProRel in the U.S. if it was implemented. From my perspective, I am, I am in total favor of ProRel coming to this country eventually, even though I support a MLS team, team in uh, Seattle, and MLS is largely against this concept. The idea of a club in this country working the, their way up through the leagues to get promoted to the top flight is something that is uh, very appealing to me. However, I can see why MLS is against ProRel. Uh, ProRel would uh, make MLS less attractive for new investors because of the risk involved. As a fan of other sports such as baseball and hockey, in addition to soccer, I have talked with fans of these sports who love the ProRel system and would love to see it in their league someday because it would eliminate things like tanking to get a high draft pick and it would and it could be used by leagues to pre- to prevent situations like what is happening to the to the Oakland A's of Major League Baseball currently if MLS were to implement ProRel successfully i think it would cause the other big leagues in this country to try to do the same though that, that there would be massive pushback from owners Next up is Bob. He wants to talk to us about a few different topics. Bob says, firstly, thank you, uh, Kartik and Chris, for all of your efforts and expertise in continuing to educate and promote the beautiful game in North America. As an American, I grew up with sports and parental encouragement. At the time, my high school in Rochester, uh, New York, did not have American football though it began during my high school years. Nonetheless, soccer was our big autumn sport, and to brag just a little bit, our Rochester soccer community uh, was big. 
having not only um, top summer leagues, but supporting our local Rochester Lancers, uh, who later became the Rhinos, in our nation's top league, even though we had the smallest population of any NASL team, etc. I remember beating Miami Fusion with Carlos Valderrama in Rochester. I proudly recall uh, playing on the Rochester All-Star team in in a match, just before the headliner of Lancers against the New York Cosmos. When the final whistle blew, uh, our bench was crowded with Cosmos players. Actually, when the, when the whistle, whistle blew, uh, our uh, bench was crowded with Cosmos players warming up. I got to be 10 feet within uh, Hele and uh, Johan Nieskins, etc. And I believe uh, Franz Beckenbauer as well, a true thrill for a 19-year-old at the time. The Lancers hosted international matches as well, playing Panathinaikos, Hearts of Midlothian, and Santos, to name a few. It was truly big time in Rochester. Kartik, what's your memories of the uh, Rochester Rhinos or Lancers? And uh, have you had a chance oh, to see them over the years? I could do a whole pod. I could do a whole podcast on it. And yes, I, I, I actually uh, have been to matches at. Uh, I guess it's now called Marina Auto Stadium or or Salin Stadium, the new stadium, a couple times. Um, Pat Urkeley, one of my favorite people in the game in uh, in American soccer. Uh, but I uh, have so much time for the history of Rochester, one of the premier um, soccer towns in America that has really been screwed up in the last couple of years. Uh, MLS Next Pro uh, messed that that situation up with the. Uh, the successor club to the uh, to, to the Rhinos, which they call Rochester New York FC, Flower City United in Nisa has had to merge with the Syracuse club, uh, but they're going to they're continuing to play matches, so that's good. That's uh, one little uh, uh, toe uh, still for Rochester. Rochester has a great indoor soccer legacy too, and the Lancers came back as an indoor team that soccer Sam owned for a number of years. Um, also, some of the best coverage of the sport. Uh, has come out of that uh, area. So I think of uh, uh, Jeff D. Veronica with the Rochester paper. I think of uh, uh, I mentioned Soccer Sam a minute ago in his, his radio show. Uh, Chuck Z and uh, the International Soccer Archives based up in, uh, uh, up in Rochester. So uh, what a soccer town. Yeah, and just to add to that too, Bob did mention that uh, he says, uh, secondly, as far as uh, questions regarding Major League Soccer, Apple has made it even more difficult to be a MLS fan as one must buy the whole MLS season pass to watch uh, games. I can watch Premier League, Champions League and even fifth tier English matches more easily and less expensively. MLS has lost me as a fan for this year anyway and sounds like it'll be even longer. And and, and that's, I mean, yeah, we, we've been talking about that for a while. That's the jeopardy, right, of being behind a paywall on a streaming service, uh, which which people can access. However, I think the pricing is still still an issue. I think I think the pricing is too high. Um, it'll be interesting to see if MLS and Apple do maybe like a, a mid season discount, or for those people who haven't signed up, maybe for the last uh, six months of the season, maybe a special introductory rate. Um, I think they have to do something because to me, it seems to be. That MLS season pass has plateaued. Uh, it really, I, I watch it every week. Um, they had technical difficulties this past weekend for the Minnesota game. Um, you know, what I mean, it, it, it's. I, I enjoy watching it. Um, the soccer isn't the greatest, 
but now and again there's some good action i enjoy watching it to to me now it is a basically a regular kind of uh, every saturday night sitting down with my family watching the games i enjoy watching it but i'm just really concerned about the most of the fans out there price is one issue but uh i really feel that uh, i don't know if 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 anything Kartik, I, I think honestly i think this particular timing of of how what of what mls is like right now is probably the worst timing for mls season pass in that the leagues the, the games aren't that interesting. There's not a lot of stuff happening in games where you're like, oh my gosh, you should have seen this game or you should have seen this new player that did this or the new signing. There's really not a lot to get excited about on the pitch. Now, off the pitch, I think they're doing a great job with MLS Season Pass and all the technology. And yes, it could be better. But I think just the timing is not in sync. And, and it really, I mean, yes, they're still pushing on Messi, but... I mean, they're offering the least amount of money out of all of the different partners, whether it's PSG uh, trying to renew the contract, Barcelona, if they can come through with what they're offering. Um, I mean, the Saudis are offering more than, than probably all of those. And MLS is offering the least amount of money. But, I mean, if, if Messi does want to kind of come here for a couple of seasons, I mean, MLS really needs him really, really badly. Yeah, I talked to someone uh who works at one of the clubs in the league uh, this past weekend. And, and uh, he was very, very down on the Apple thing. Um, felt like that day, he, he, the club he works for had, had lost fans as a result. And uh, I don't know if that's a, a feeling among many people who are staffers in, in, in comms departments around, uh, around the league. But um, yeah, I just was kind of depressed about it and, and, and said it just it, it made sense from a monetary standpoint. But uh, exposure is now a problem and, and, and that there's a there, there, there's a feeling that uh, maybe the timing was all wrong. Maybe you could have done this after the 26 World Cup, uh, but that the, the mo- momentum that MLS should be having going into that World Cup uh, maybe gets st- uh, stalled because of uh, this deal. Uh, let's see. Yeah, just to th- throw this in too, from about uh, about 10 days ago, it was Atlanta United against Chicago on FS1. Uh, the viewership for that game was 64,000 people watched that game. So, you mean, I mean, I don't think MLS season pass are bringing in massive numbers. So the TV numbers are a concern at the same time. I don't know. This, this is going to be really difficult for them. I, I, I think... Maybe we'll do a podcast on, on that maybe later this week or, or, or sometime in the near future about what they need to do. What, what can they do to actually um, I mean, change things, make it better if it's going to work at all? So, yeah, a lot of concerns there, but we'll we'll cover that, in, I'm sure, in a future episode. Listeners, um, we really pre- appreciate you listening to us. If you do have any questions or comments or feedback on any, anything we've talked about in this episode, let us know. Uh, we have a new way of uh, you reaching us out, uh, reaching out to us, uh, and that's through voicemail. So that's five six one two four seven four six two five. You can send us an email, uh, and the email address is web at worldsoccertalk dot com. Twitter is at worldsoccertalk. You can reach us on Facebook, facebook dot com slash world uh, worldsoccertalk. Uh, and of course, the website at worldsoccertalk.com and then leave a comment uh, in the podcast section. Kartik, uh, before we go, uh, where can listeners find you on social media and or Substack? 
Yeah, KKFLA737 on Twitter, beyondthe90.substack.com at Substack, and also on Substack Notes. Really important. Uh, pushing a lot of soccer content uh, uh, that I'm not putting on Twitter out on Substack Notes, which uh, I, I think is open to every. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it because I'm trying to, to get uh, the platform going. Those of us who are Substack creators have been encouraged to do that. But um, I, I'm getting uh, some subscriptions, it looks like, for our Beyond the 90s uh, out of uh, one I'm posting on notes. So uh, check check us out there. Uh, and I will uh, concede that what's happened with Beyond the 90s, it's become heavy on uh, lower division coverage from England, championship coverage, etc. And then also uh, lower division coverage from the United States. But still, we dip our toes into, uh, into Bundesliga, uh, Serie A, Premier League, and uh, other topics around the game, women's game, etc. Uh, so check us out. Excellent. Good stuff. All right, listeners, uh, thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode. And Kartik, looking ahead to midweek, there's a lot of uh, big games happening, of course, uh, around the world of soccer. What are you going to do and what should the listeners do? Enjoy your football.